Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. All right. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. So, how you been this week? I have been well. I enjoyed the book we just read, Survivor. It's unique. I like the author. I've only read one of his other books, Fight Club. And I originally saw the movie back in the day. The movie book comparison, I like the ending of the movie better, which I think is a rare find today because I think that the filmmakers ended up doing something more fun than the questioning that you have at the end of the book. So um, I like what the author does. I'm, I'm happy that we got the suggestion from today's guest to read it and to have her on the show. It's Jess. Hi. So we have a special treat for you today. My friend Jess is on the show. She's a Palinuk, Palinik fan, and she's going to be discussing the book with us. But before we get into that, I want to say, Jonathan, you have converted me to amorality. Amorality? Amorality. Amorality. You've converted me to it. Because we left the last episodes on the discussion of is Uh, the word integrity or the idea of integrity, is it amoral or is there something inherently Mm -hmm. moral about being integritous? And after our last episode, I did some digging around and reading of philosophy papers and whatnot. And I have come to the conclusion that it is an amoral thing. You can be, you can have integrity and a wholeness of being or a wholeness of a life that is based on immoral things. Yeah. Or you can you can have integrity towards an idea and that idea itself be an immoral idea. Love it. That's one for me. Go me. What do you think, Jess? Is integrity amoral or is it inherently a good thing? Amoral. That's what I assumed before. Like, now, I, I asked a couple of people and they all thought it was just like a neutral term. Yeah. Because like I hear things like integrity of a product, and it's, you know, that's a product. It doesn't have morality. That's fair. That's a good point. But I feel like it's because it's, we assume it's a good thing because, like, there's something very admirable about people who stick to the same thing, especially if yeah. it's extreme. I don't know, for whatever is, reason. Yeah, consistency, with, and especially with, like, I guess an extreme ideology. Like, there's something kind of admirable, not about Hitler. <laughs> I feel like that's the example he used. There's nothing general about Hitler specifically, but that he, you know, he didn't, you know, back out the last at minute. At least you know? I know she's listened to some of our episodes and can uh, can throw my arguments back at me. Yeah, like wait, 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 don't bring that up. I I, I heard it the last time. That's what I learned this week because sometimes we ask icebreaker questions. Oh yes, this question of the week maybe something to do with philosophy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> We got that out of the way. So all three of us are on the same page philosophically, I like I that Jess was ahead of you on this, because that brings me joy. Like, Was I? Well, yeah, because your, your stance was that you already thought integrity was amoral, and you had asked a couple. I just assumed yeah. it, yeah. I mean, it still yeah. feel, it feels like it feeds my point, so I'm just going to use it anyway, even though we could talk about assumptions and, and all that jazz. But I, uh, I feel good about this. That's, 
That's the best part of my week right now. I'll just disagree with him. <laughs> See, I knew it was going to happen. I, I gave you props, Jess, that say you wouldn't gang up on me with Jonathan, but now you have, which is just a complete reversal of what happens when his friends are on. All of yeah. us gang up on Jonathan. Yeah, they've tried to take over the podcast. They've um, they've taken over. Make fun of you. Yeah, that too. <laughs> All of the above. Well, let's quickly do an overview of last week, and then we'll get into this. So we covered Survivor by Chuck Palahniuk, and... It's a book about a death cult, specifically about one member of a death cult that's been bred, for lack of a better term, to be a servant, just out in the world. And the meager wages that they make, these servants get sent back to the death cult. Now, when we find ourselves in the story is Tender, the name of the main character, has hijacked a plane and is flying it until... All engines fail. He runs out of fuel and hopefully drops out of the sky somewhere in the Australian outback. As the book opens, he's recording his life story into the black box. We find out where he came from. We find out the people he worked with. And then we see him go from meager servant to pseudo-messiah that's created by this man called The Agent, who's a representative of the media. Things really come to a head when he messes up pretty badly at a Super Bowl halftime show, at which there was a staged wedding for him. And then he goes on a run with a girl named Fertility and his brother. He ends up murdering his brother, and everything in his world ends up falling apart. Now, this woman, Fertility, has some sort of psychic abilities, and he finds out from her, snooping in her journal, that there's going to be a hijacking. So he goes to the airport to... I don't know, Saver, maybe stop the hijacking, and ends up hijacking the plane. And that's where we meet him again. And the book ends on a bit of an ambiguous note. So what Jonathan and I discussed was a little bit of the plot, a little bit of the book, a bit of the philosophy of Chuck Palahniuk, which he draws a lot from absurdism, a lot from Nietzsche. And we did discuss the morality or amorality of the word integrity, and that's where, kind of where we ended, and we said that for the guest episode, when Jess comes on, we will discuss some of the more interesting plot points that stood out to her, that stood out to us, and that's what we're going to do. But before we do that, we are going to have our guest, my friend Jess, introduce herself, how she met me, and what drew her to the podcast, maybe, but specifically what books she likes, what draws her to literature, books, just a usual introduction. So just take it away. I also want to know okay. how you met Slava. Like, what? This guy's a bit of a schmuck. So, like, let's hear about that. Too. I thought he was a weird. Sorry, I'm yelling. Oh, I thought he was like a. He is a weird, weird guy. guy. You're to right. Add to, to add to where I work. But I, yeah. I don't know. Am I allowed to say what we did then? Yeah. Because it's not what you do now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I nice. work in a restaurant. And he worked in a restaurant. And he, if you've ever worked in a restaurant, you're all very close. The whole. The whole, like, group is close. So I was like, oh, this guy. Like, I didn't think I was going to like him Because he dressed too formal. And that was it. I was like, he looks like he should be working at a nicer restaurant. Because yeah, I was one of the one. I was the only, only one guy. that followed, followed the dress code. And, yeah. And you want to put it that way. Because yeah. <laughs> I guess I don't. Well, that's That doesn't surprise me about him, though. But he recommended me a book. So that was like... I feel like we talked about books because I found out that Slava loves coming of age teenage. You know girl that books. that checks out <laughs> based on the characters that. he likes. <laughs> and you were talking about a Judy Bloom book, 
Summer Sisters, which I also read like really young. <laughs> and it was yeah. such an inappropriate book to read that young. This was a mistake. Can you give us a quick <laughs> rundown? Because I've never heard of that book. It's just such a weird Summer Sisters is about two best friends. Let's leave it at that. No, no, no. I need Sorry. to know. I, as the audience. <laughs> it is such a girl book. Oh, my gosh. It's two best friends in their, like, very dramatic lives. And, like, you know, there's romance. Well, between the two of them briefly. And then, like, with, like, some guys at mm. the summer the summer house. And then, like, from what I remember, it was a long time. They had different lives during the year. They come from very different backgrounds. I don't even know the That's point probably of the book. It. That's probably the point. It is. Uh, Slice of life. That's, it's, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. This is the podcast. So you're, you're well, you're in frame. Yeah. And then I don't remember why you told me that. Because we both read We're the Crawdad Sing. That was good. Which one. is a somewhat new book, which, I, you know, it's very overrated. It's, Whoa. it's good enough. Interesting. I think you thought the same thing, Slava. Right? Yeah. Like the writing well, wasn't fantastic. I didn't like the ending that much. I, didn't, I don't think I commented on the writing, but I like the story a lot. I think it gets a lot of hate because people think it's overrated. And then maybe, maybe a lot of people who sing it praises overdo it. But I think it's a decent book. What makes it overrated to you, Jess? When something's overrated, I think it's when it's a lot of bestsellers that everyone says is like a great book and that you have to read it. So what about that makes it overrated? It might just be that I expected more, maybe. Mm. Because I'm trying to think, my friend did ask me what, what I view as, mm. like, overhyped things. Because he said, you know, I think that with music, what do you mean when, like, a book is overhyped? But that one, I would think. A lot of bestsellers. Well, sometimes it's that's because of marketing, I think. Like, a lot of books, people, for whatever reason, they're bestsellers, and I can't figure out why. Like, a lot of popular. One book that comes to mind is The Firm by John Grissom. And it's, uh, see, you guys don't know it, but it's from the 90s. No, I've seen it. I've read one book by him. I know the author. And the movie always gets crapped on by the diehard Grisham fans. But I think the movie has a better structure to it than the book. And I felt the book, when I reread it as an adult, I felt the book was overrated. A lot of John Grisham fans on forums and Reddit and all that stuff, they go nuts for the book. I think it's... A solid B, maybe, on a good day. And I bought it and read it because it's nostalgic to me. From Because I, when I read it as a kid, I thought it was amazing. Then a movie came out, and mm-hmm. I thought it was amazing. So I understand what you mean. Too many people kind of jo- join the bandwagon, and I think some of them don't even know why they like it. They're like, well, everybody else likes it, and it's not that bad, so I guess I love or it too. Or I think some people just don't read that much. That That is a valid point. So like, yeah. I read a lot of books a year. I'm not going to find all of them to be the same quality. Yep. Which is like a thing where reading a lot of more classical literature, like people just don't write the same anymore. No. Well, thanks for the introduction, Jess. Let's dive into Survivor Part 2 and talk about the book. I I do want to throw this to Jess first because I enjoy hearing what our guests have to say more than Slava. What are some of the moments in the plot, whether that's with characters or story or world, that stood out to you the first time you read Survivor? And then as a precursor question... Uh, how many books of Chuck's have you read before Survivor? Because for me, I only read Fight Club. So I only have one data point, if you will, prior to reading Survivor. Okay, I was around 16 when I read Survivor. And what the plot point that like I like with Chuck P's stuff usually, it's the same from Fight Club as uh, this one, 
it's kind of like this destroying your life and then like rebuilding it. If you like you lose like, you know, that whole losing all hope is freedom Mm -hmm. thing from Fight Club. That's kind of the message in this book, too. He destroys his life completely, destroys his history. And then we assume he dies. Well, you're supposed to assume he dies or did he? And then if he can die, he can rise, you know, out of it. Right. And it kind of completes that Mm. Messiah thing. Rise again. But like I feel like. I've always found that very appealing, even in high school. I don't know why in high school I was so – that's why I like uh, his writing so much in Fight Club. Because it is a weird that I liked Fight Club so much for, like, a 16-year-old girl. Because it, it doesn't – it's not really meant for a 16-year-old girl. But, like, that extremism and – I don't know. I guess it's kind of edgy. It appeals to – Got it. Like, edgy people. <laughs> There's an underlying, underlying thing there, too. The reason that I like coming-of-age stories and – that I gravitate towards certain characters is because I can see myself in them or I can sympathize with their stories or their troubles. And therefore I will be like, wow, this is a book that either blows my mind or I'll be somehow, even if it's not the greatest book in the world, like uh, where the crawdads sing, I can really be attached to the character's story. Mm -hmm. So, and the same vein, I like really weird stuff where it's off the beaten path writing like China Mayville, Chuck Palahniuk, some of Stephen King's stuff. If it's really weird, if it's transgressive, if it's absurd writing, I just like it because that's also my experience and my philosophy. <laughs> well, not my philosophy specifically, but a philosophy that we discussed in the previous episode where Jonathan and I are both endeared to. So I think there's certain things that just grab on to a person, whether they're 16 or, or 60. It's hard to describe because I think it's an immaterial thing that happens where you just are attracted to certain things. And when put into a story form, you are engrossed. You're captivated, to use mm-hmm. that word again. I think for me, the <laughs> plot points that really stood out is after Tender becomes famous and his interactions with the agent – and how the agent gives him a pill to fix him being fat, but the fat pill gives him, you know, another thing that he needs a pill for or a surgery. And it's this constant cycle while Tender is in the pseudo-Messiah figure and the books that he puts out that he doesn't even know that he puts out. Mm-hmm. Like these, these pseudo, uh, pseudo-religious, pseudo-philosophical, like faux... Um, a poignant, not poignant, was the word I'm looking for. There's another word. Help me out, guys. <laughs> Something that's supposed to be, like, mind-blowing. I I feel like I need a little more co- from you. I thought you were going to say spiritual. Yeah, we can go with that. Like So, like, uh, faux spiritual stuff that just vomited out on page. And even he hates it, but everybody gobbles it up. As I read Survivor, I was like, wow, this captures the insatiable appetite of the masses for just garbage they need to fill Mm -hmm. themselves up with something and there's a lot of this in dystopian novels like the running man people indulge themselves in the 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 game the running man the tv show the running man because there's nothing else to do you have to fill up your life with something and then you get desensitized to maybe the things that would normally give you pause and you say that this is kind of garbage this is not good for me this is unhealthy you get desensitized to it, and then you start eating the garbage. Interesting. What, and Slav and I briefly talked about the tropes in the last episode. Jess, what do you think, because this is, this is my perspective on it, is the tropes between what happened in Fight Club, 
versus what happens in the survivor feels like a I'm taking the trope and then I'm like putting some cheese on it and then giving it back to you. Like it felt like the same tropes where there's like the main male character and he, you know, is in this this grunge level working society part of life and there's like this mm-hmm. underground kind of layer to him in this version it's he's a death part of a you know group in a death cult and then he has the female counterpart who has uh oracle like tendencies i'll say because with fight club i want to say fisher what's her what's what's the gal's name in fight club that marla it's fisher right marla, marla fisher no singer singer dang yeah. all right i got it wrong um thank you so marla comes up you know in fight club to tyler and she has and I say Oracle-like tendencies because I, I think that she's purposely ethereal in the way that she's written from Chuck's narrative style. And, and please correct, you're more well-read in him than I am. Correct me if I'm wrong here. But when we have an Oracle-type character come in, she's supposed to give some sort of guidance or leading to a character to help them have internal discoveries. Is that fair? Yeah, and that's why I think Marla reminds me so much of Fertility Hollis. Mm-hmm. Like, as, like, a storytelling thing to move the plot forward, too. A lot of his counterpart, like, the female counterpart to the male counterpart, it's, like, I think Lullaby has a similar, it's another Chuck P. book. And I also, I'm not saying the guy, the male protagonist is stupid, like, the narrator or tender, but I feel like the female counterpart is always, like, clues him into something. Mm-hmm. Or, like, is helping him yeah. in yeah. some way. Like, there's always, like, a, like, a, like, sometimes the woman counterpart is just a love interest. But I feel like at least that's the trend in those three books. I haven't thought about any other ones. Maybe I barely remember Rant Kate Rant, an oral biography. I read that book once, and every time I tried to replace it, I lost it. So I stopped buying it. So I haven't reread that since it came out, even though I purchased it many times. That sounds like an interesting side quest. Can we go down that? Why, why do you think you kept losing it? After you I bought it. Why well, lose everything? And I move all oh, the okay. time. All and right. I had to have the complete Chuck P. Because before I was probably more of a diehard like fan. Okay. I'm not. I don't like every one of his books. Or I feel like I haven't given them a fair shot and have to reread them. But oh, um, every time I like moved, I happened to lose Rant. Hmm. Specifically huh. that book. Like the last time I had it, the trade copy version of it, I don't even think I had opened it. And it's just gone. <laughs> wow. Yeah, <laughs> but I lose things a lot, so I just happen to notice that one's missing. Hmm. Do you notice any themes across all of his books that he just reuses, or is it just between Fight Club and Survivor? Kind of like that. You know how you can tell certain things from an author? Like, I I don't have to look up that he's an atheist. I just know he's an atheist. <laughs> you know, you get that yeah. vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Which you see in all of his, what I feel like, Fight Club, the uh, Survivor Maybe Lullaby is another one I haven't reread in a while. And I do think his, you know, he's supposed to be nihilistic, but it's like the cheerful nihilism. Or he doesn't think of himself that way. I always think his books seem hopeful. Hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. They lose everything and there's still a lot of hope for the future. So they're not downers. Despite, he says a lot of depressing little one-liners. That's like his thing too. That's definitely his thing. And he never really, he doesn't always expand on them. So it's easy to sound extremely deep. Which is why I think I loved his writing so much. Because I never, like, when I was in high school, I didn't really think on, when you asked me about the themes, I'm like, I don't know if I really sat there and thought about it. I liked the fast-paced story. Mm. And then probably the transgressive elements, like the like the taboo things you're not supposed to talk about. Like, that was very appealing to a teenager. When they're, like, yeah. you know, 
and I, 35 years old, we didn't have a lot to choose from for, like, shocking material. I mean, we had plenty, you know, but, like, nothing like today. The amount has definitely uh, increased and access to it. Yeah, something, like, shocking but well-written. Yeah. So I feel like his stuff is – now we have plenty of shocking stuff, but it's just not well-written. I wouldn't call it, like, literature. Interesting. I agree with you. How do you classify literature – And how do you know the books that you've read that were shocking were not literature? I think about this a lot because I feel like we don't have any standards anymore. 100%. Like what would count as literature? But I'm not sure how I define it. It's kind of like the thing you know it when you read it. I was recently thinking about this because of poetry. Because there's some poetry that is not poetry. That's really popular right now. And I'm like, well, poetry, I feel like there's definitely like some standard to set it apart from other written art. If you're... Like, uh, I can't pronounce her name. I think it's considered Instagram poetry. It's like the little, like the new poetry that's like one line. There's no, you've not seen this? They have it at like Target. There's a lot of poetry books. I've seen it. Yeah, okay, thank you. Like, they're just awful. Yeah, I'm baffled. I'm living in a different world over here. Like, there's like a lot of line breaks that serve no, if you read it. It doesn't serve a purpose for it. It's just to aesthetically look a certain way. And I'm like, well, you can call it art. And it's a, sometimes there's a sentence that might be true. Or it might make you feel something, but it's not poetry because it doesn't. Yeah, here. You know, poetry, you should know you're reading poetry. So this is a Instagram account called Poets of Instagram. It has 4.4 million followers. And here's one of the poems, the first one that my eyes landed upon. Every day we are here is a chance to be more. More considerate, more informed, more caring, empathetic, more human, more human, more human. That's. You know, Lisa, that one has a lot of words. That one's that one's poetry in today's world. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Or there's, here's one. Huh. Here's one. Do it for your future self. That's like a fortune cookie, though. Is that? It is. It's, oh, that's on the same account. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like a whole poem. And sometimes there'll like be a picture. Yep. There's some horrible, like, they make, there's like a poem huh. by Ruby Carr. I think that's how you say her name. And it's about a sexual experience. It's awful. It's cringy. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. wait. You can find it. You can Google it. it Well, I ask. It's for milk and it's from milk and honey. I think it might. be I don't know what that is, but that sounds sexual. Anyway, it does. It is honey. (laughs) Milk and honey. But it's just like a that poem specifically. Like I would say that whole book. There's maybe like a few poems in it. Oh, it's a a book. Milk and honey is a book. Yeah, Milk and Honey is a book by a like a poet that's very popular, and I've like read her process, and I'm like, it takes you that long to edit your sentence. How long does it take her? That you wrote? I don't know. She just like it takes her a long time to edit, and then draw her little figure thing. Oh, that there's she like does. illustrations or something. She has like an illustration, which I'm like, that, I mean, that's a thing. It's art in some way, but I don't think it's poetry. Interesting, Slava. Like it needs to. No, go for it. Well, she also reads her poetry, and I'm like, she reads it in a way that almost makes it sound more poetic. But spoken word poetry, if it's How written do down, I, I think it still appears like it's poetry. Yeah, you, ha- yeah, you can look at her what, up on YouTube. Give, give me a rundown here. Or or you can put it in our, our document. Just copy and paste it anywhere real quick. So I, I can look it up real quick. But okay. while you're doing that, Slava, what was the name of that woman that the Inklings made fun of? Oh, I remember that poem. That was a poem. It was bad, but it's a poem. Kitchard Ross. It sounds, the, what you're describing sounds like Kitchard Ross. But you read a poem. Is that what I'm thinking of the episode where you read this horrible poem out loud? Yeah. But, like, that was a poem at least. It had, like, descriptive language. Freaking. Because in poetry you have to, like, describe right. things. And, I mean, that was just bad. But at least it tried. Well, that's subjective. Like, you just have to, like, you know, describe visual things. 
Like, I know there's, like, I remember, you know, when we learned in school, there's certain things poetry has to, like, meet a certain amount of requirements. Like, It doesn't have to rhyme. Yeah. And if you think, like, of, like, poetry you like, like, T.S. Eliot, a lot of parts of the poems I like of his, I, like, checked, and they're all iambic pentameter. Like, your ears can tell what's good. Yeah. Like, I don't have to be taught it's good. I know it's good. Yep. So, interesting. Okay, so I looked this author up, and and she's doing a quick read here, and Oh, it's so bad. Like she uses, yeah, hand she, she, yeah. I see the little illustration you're talking about. Assuming that it's a scanned in version that she, because she's on like half of it in her, yeah, she's on the other half. I used to attend a spoken word night in my city every Monday, and there's a difference between the writing, and I think this is what you're getting at. And correct me if I'm wrong. There's the writing, which is an art, and then there's the performing, which is an art, right? Yeah. And doing them together, I think, is a, is a synthesized art to bring the two together, but like. Anyone can learn, you and I can learn some of her stuff, and we could perform it in our own unique ways, and we could call it a whatever. Yeah. Honestly, that kind of sounds like a fun Instagram to start, just to do it. We could make poet, we could write a whole book in a, like a half an hour, like she does it, and perform, like it doesn't take a lot right. of effort to do what she and does. And at least watching, and this is me watching part of one episode right now, it seems more like that she is a performer of the words she's written, because I, I looked at yeah. this text that you pointed me toward and you're right it i don't see any sort of a b b a right like or a b c a b c Mm -hmm. where there's a framework to the poetry and the literature and i think just to bring this back a little bit you said that you think a lot of stuff today is not good literature that's um what'd you say it was is is not poppy art but um provocative is that what you said provocative uh books weren't good literature Shocking. Oh, shocking. Thank I think you. I said yeah. shocking. Yeah. So do you think that the shocking books that you've read and classifying them as not good literature is because they don't follow a proper structure? Or is it simply that the writing is so shoddy that the, the grammar is not there? Or like what? Like, I know that you don't have a, a specific definition, but that's what I want to dig down into is like how. Probably okay. both. Because I feel like, like I said, there's no standards anymore, which is a very general statement, which is in general, though, I feel that about everything. There are no standards anymore. That sounds... <laughs> I feel that about literally okay, we're everything. we're going to put a pin in that, because I want to come back to that, because that sounds interesting. Yeah. I'd... It bothers me. I have nothing to aspire to. Sorry. That's, <laughs> like, just personal. We're going to come back to that. I, I, <laughs> I aspire to one day be a life coach, so let's try and throw some inspiration your way before the end of the episode. Okay. Love it. Slava, bring us back to the book here a minute, and we'll, we'll come back, because I do want to hear more about how you think that there's no standards today. But let's do that a little later in the episode. Yeah, for sure. Now, the themes in the book that I found, and some of these I agree with, some of these, I I don't know, maybe, probably, some of them I don't. But these are the themes I found reading analyses of the book or book reviews. And this is what I pulled out of them. So the central theme revolves around, you know, a scathing critique of celebrity culture Astender becomes ensnared in his persona, this media-made messiah, the pseudo-messiah. The narrative provides social commentary on fame, religion, corporate avarice, which for those who don't know means just extreme greed. Mm-hmm. And this is not my words. This is something I'm pulling out from, uh, from people that I've read. The fleeting nature of beauty and questions of authenticity. And then this is this is something that I believe, and I forget where I got this part of the the overview from. The perpetual human inclination to desire novelty and change, or at least novelty. I don't know about change. 
those things I do see in the book, especially in the portion that stood out to me, where all the books that Tender puts out, again, people just want more and more and more, and his miracles, the fertility helps him achieve, and his pseudo-advice on the Oprah version or the morning show version in his world, that seems like on point. That's what uh, Chuck P. uh, wanted to say, or at least that's the commentary that I saw that I agree with. What do you guys think? I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Yeah, same, same. Good thoughts, Jess. Thanks for thanks for the You're thanks for the follow up. <laughs> I'm glad I came over. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Judge, next question. Okay. Well, <laughs> thanks for the setup on that one, Slava. I didn't even think though of the perpetual human inclination to desire novelty and change. I know I yeah. read. I guess you wrote that in the text, but I I didn't notice that until you mentioned it. Like the reason those you know the book a very common prayer like people want to change they don't really want to change they don't want to put the effort forward to change but they want the idea that they're going to change so that because it's the novelty of changing yeah and it's so base and not in the good way that the kids are saying this way it's just the lowest level of the lowest right it's it's pseudo profundity that's the word i was looking for it's nothing that really changes the world it's a cookie fortune theology Mm-hmm. And yet people love it. And this is me going on a side quest and making a wild speculation. There is such a thing as the Book of Common Prayer. I think it's put out by the Presbyterian Church. And it's pretty much a book of prayers to for daily devotions. And it's funny that Chuck says or names Tender's book of a very common prayer. I don't know if there's something to it or I'm overthinking it, but it's the original common prayer book is just, it's for everybody, meaning it's a prayer book for the lay. And these are standard common prayers. You can say daily in your devotionals or your daily prayers, your daily meditations. And this one is, and it uses scripture, uh, right? And you, so you pray, you pray through scripture. This one is a book of very common prayer, and it's the pseudo-profound fortune cookie nonsense quotes like, if you want to quit smoking, just pray to this unknown God. But if it's his will that you continue smoking, may he bless your smoking or something. Yeah. I- I'm paraphrasing, but something as silly as that. I'm not sure if that's Chuck as an atheist, you know, nihilist, absurdist, making a critique of Christian prayer that somebody might say, God help me quit smoking, or if he's more so, which I lean to, Towards He is making a statement about how people, consumers in American culture, will consume absolutely anything, no matter how god-awful it is, as long as it kind of scratches some sort of felt need or a perceived felt need. Aren't, but, but don't uh, people like Tender Branson exist in Christian, like the... Yes. Okay, that's what I thought. Yes, like I, absolutely I thought yes. about that, but I didn't know, and I figured you two would know. Like, yeah. Um, I'm not saying Joel Olstein because I don't know if that's true, but is he one of them? Joel Olstein is a like polished... like a self-help Christian type Yeah, thing. Joel Olstein is a very polished and willing participant in this game, I would say. Tender Branson is an unwilling participant, and again, this goes back to the in-world critique, what is appropriate and rational and logical in the world that Chuck has built in Survivor mm-hmm. versus our world, right? So... If we were to stretch 
those though that that analysis, he's a dressed down version of Joel Osteen. In world, I think he might be a Joel Osteen type figure. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, it does. So Jess, you brought something up a second ago that you said people don't actually want to change. Can you unpack that for me? Like, I agree with you, but why do you think that? Well, I think they want to change. It's the what goes behind changing. You know, it's not fun to change. Like, uh, get rid of get rid of a bad habit. It takes forever, and then you also backslide, and then you have to like you feel like you start over, but that's not really how progress works. And you, you know, you read that's not how progress works. Mm-hmm. It's not linear, which no one wants that. So like these books are they almost like little spells. They remind me of like those Wiccan spells. Like, you know, they're like, uh, this, there was one for traffic, but everyone was saying it, like, while they were in traffic in the book. Oh, yeah. I don't know if that was yeah. the very common prayer, the second book to that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yep. like, with the smoking, it covers all bases. So in case you can't quit smoking, you know, no one really wants change because there's already an out right at the beginning. Yeah. Like, no, if you're going to quit smoking, you just have to take it off the table. You're like, I'm no longer a smoker. You cannot entertain the idea of continuing to smoke. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. That's a very good point. You can't just smoke at your friend's house after you eat at the dinner party. Right. Because your friend is also trying to quit smoking. And when you bring <laughs> yeah. cigarettes over and he and, and I didn't bring you because I forgot them. inadvertently takes 10 from you, then it doesn't help either of us. I mean, either yeah. of them, these then people. I, I, I feel like I'm quitting. These, these hypothetical people who we're talking about. Yes, yes. Of course. Yeah, not me. That's wonderful. Yeah. What about you guys, though? Do you think people really want to change? I, I think... So that's tough. I, I told you a second ago that I, at some point, aspire to be a life coach. And mm-hmm. I want change for us. Everyone can achieve their highest potential if they simply start walking the path. Now, I say that, and I've met people, and they go, no, you can't, da-da-da, so why even bother? And it's like, no, 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 you can. You're just not willing to try because you don't want to fail. Do you literally mean, like, the behavior? I mean yourself like whatever and and this is why i said let's come back to it maybe this is a good time to to unpack these things is mm-hmm. you you made a comment i wrote it down you said you don't feel like you have anything to aspire to today and i would say i think you mm-hmm. do and i think that you haven't discovered it and there's probably a dozen reasons why but some of the common ones that i've seen in life is we feel like the world is against us which is a perspective that a lot of people hold we feel like the system is against us which is not entirely wrong, but you can make it work for you if you're willing to change. So let, let me do two parts here. So you asked, you know, what do we think about people changing? And then I'll answer, Slava will answer, mm-hmm. and then I'll come back to this. I believe that people think they want to change, but they don't actually want to change. And it's, it's, oh, it's okay. like a lie that we tell ourselves because, and I'm going to use a couple examples here to not like pinpoint anyone, but there's, you know, there's like people who are obese. And like, I'm technically, I went to the, this is a fun story. So this, and this is years ago and I've gotten bigger since. So it's not a, it's not a, doesn't paint me in a great light. I was at the doctor's for a checkup, probably 2014, something like that. And I'm talking to the nurse about this great salad place that I go to for lunch. I'm going to go there afterward, blah, blah, blah. She takes my weight. She walks me into the room and she's like, I pause and, 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 and she goes, oh, well, I'll have to try it. And then she goes, also, I'm legally obligated to tell you that you're obese. And I went, Cool. So this is fun. I just spent 20 <laughs> minutes talking to you about salad and how much I love eating. This checks out. Yeah. In, in, the, in the state that I 
was in and still a little bit there, it's like, I can say that I want to lose weight, but if I'm not putting action to my words, I don't actually want to lose weight. I talk about wanting to lose weight. And so I think people talk about changing. Yeah. And so they, they know that they should and they know that they want to. And then to your point, I think that they don't because it is hard. And I think I've said this on another podcast. I don't know if you've caught one of the episodes, but it's like being healthy is boring. It's why no one wants to be it. Eating healthy, having healthy relationships, keeping boundaries, being emotionally healthy, being spiritually healthy. All of these things take work and energy. And it means cutting people out of our lives that we enjoy spending time with. But they're not benefiting us. And it's not that you should be in every relationship that benefits you, but it is that you should be a good steward of that which you're given. And time is one of your greatest resources that you will never get back. So that's how I would that's how I would answer uh, the first question, which is, do people really want to change? Slava? I think I agree with you in part. People do a lot of lip service to change. The caveat there is some people actually do want to change but have no tools or don't, don't understand how, and it's easier to just fall back into patterns, or sometimes the patterns are so mm-hmm. habitual that it's almost automatic. So we talk about worldviews and Christianity and philosophy in this podcast sometimes, and the way the Bible describes it, and it's often misused and misquoted and you know, made out to be some sort of, you know, world is ending, doomsday kind of mentality. It's not. But when the Bible says you are a slave to sin, it is your will, although you have a free will, your will is bound to something to which you will naturally incline and act accordingly. So mm-hmm. take that, and that's like the meta thing, that, that kind of overrides everything. Take that and put it into smoking, like, is smoking a sin? No. But if you want to quit, the lack of discipline comes from just people being, dare I say, a bit broken. And that principle can be at play whether you want to quit smoking, whether you want to quit drinking, whether you want to quit doing drugs, whether you want to get thinner because your you know, doctor tells you you're obese, whether you want to change habits that are time management, money management, get out of a toxic, unhealthy relationship, the gamut. I think some people are lazy and just do lip service. For some people, it's just easier to stay in the muck. And there's some people that need either a kick in the pants, a stern talking to, or tools. And then they're like, oh, okay. I know myself. I'm stubborn as hell. But when presented with evidence, I'll be, okay, yep, no, that makes sense. You proved it to me, and I will change course. Now, changing course might not be easy, and it might be now forming other habits, and that might take more than a week, but I'm ready, willing, and able to change or present with the right evidence. Does that make me some sort of genius or a better person than most? No, but that's just how mm-hmm. I'm built. But some people, when presented with those tools and evidence, still go, Yeah, that's there's a lot you. of, I feel like people fall into those two groups where like people, they know what they have to do. And then they, they can't – This I feel like they're more hopeful. And then the people who – you give them all the information. And for – this will go back to like it's people usually with their weight and eating <laughs> that I talk to. I'm like, no, you're just – they refuse to believe that they are the problem. So it's just like some people, like they just don't – they want to change, but they just don't – they don't care. Like they're just being willfully, you know, ignorant. Like how many people I know, more often than not, it's women, which I don't know if that's something to it. When it comes to weight, they want to think that it has to do with their hormones mm-hmm. only. 
and which it does play into it, I'm sure, but I don't think it does as much as like the people that claim they do that won't listen to this podcast, hopefully. It's generally what they eat because it reminds me of me with my spending. I lose track of like little purchases and I assume that's what it's like when people are losing track of their calories. Yeah, it's a budget. And then I'm like, oh, I spent a lot of money on dumb shit that I wouldn't have thought would add up the way it did. And that is how people are. And I feel like that's harder to see because I wait a month and then I find out usually. And I should figure out a way to catch that faster. Where I don't know, like with food, I don't know how people don't notice that fast, you know, faster because you're carrying it everywhere. Mm -hmm. To kind of bring this change thing around, there's an author from like the 80s, John C. Maxwell, who wrote a bunch of books on leadership. And he has a quote. I don't know if he originated this quote, but it's it's credited to him. It says, people change when they hurt enough that they have to change, learn enough that they want yeah. to change, or receive enough that they are able to change. And I hold the opinion that people don't change unless they hit rock bottom, comma. Yeah, that's always the yeah. first part. Uh, people don't change unless they hit rock bottom, comma, and rock bottom's a choice. Because for some of us, it's making one mistake, and then we go, I've got to do something about this. And then we get up and mm-hmm. we assert our will toward whatever the change is, right? And we push toward it. And I think some people, to Slava's example, where they, they, they want to change but they don't know how, I think that those people haven't been taught. So I guess this is to your point, Slava. I think that those people haven't been taught how to assert their will in their lives. And so they simply re- react to life because they don't know how to take proactive action where it's like it's not hard you could go for a walk you don't have to run 50 miles the first day you start working out you can walk to the end of the road to the stop sign and back and if that makes you heavy breathing whether you're a smoker or obese you know like myself then you do it but if you do it six times in a week it becomes easier and then you do a little longer of a walk and then you do whatever and it's about consistency rather than the internal monologue that we have which is I have to run a marathon if I tell people I'm going to start working out. And it's like, you don't. You don't. But it's the choice of, is my life, is my, what is it? Is my quality of life bad enough that I'm willing to say this is rock bottom and I'm going to change it? And I think that that is, can apply to everything. And it can be, to what you said, Jess, it can be spending. Where you're like, you know what? I really want to buy a house in three years. I have to nail down this issue. You know, that's it. And the thing is, it's not an issue if you make more money. So then the option is, do you nail down your budget or do you increase your income? Maybe you do both. You know, it could be either. The path forward, and I think one of you mentioned this, might have been you, Jess. The path forward, yeah, it was you. The path forward is not linear. It's ups and downs. But if you look at it over the correct timeline, it's upward progress up the mountain, right? Yeah, it just feels bad in the moment, I think. Yeah, it's not fun. And I feel like achievement doesn't feel the way people think it's going to feel. It's not like a dopamine response right away, and we're used to that. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. It's like a Rocky movie. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I heard, speaking of Instagram poetry and, you know, whatever, life coaches, one thing I heard on Instagram doom scrolling at lunch. What does that mean? I've heard someone say that before. When you just scroll for hours. For hours. It doesn't have to be for hours. Okay, I've only done that like once because I have a Pinterest and that's very Mm -hmm. addictive. Like I'll be like, I tell my daughter, I'm like, I'm looking at the same thing over and over again, just a different version. And I do get what people, because I don't have, I don't always know what people are talking Mm -hmm. about social media. Yeah. 
I thought like you were going to say something about the end of the world because you said doom. And I was like, is there something I didn't know? About? Yeah, the end of the world's being talked about on Instagram. <laughs> so you're missing out. Yeah. Well, it's, all, it's always being talked about. So you're going to be the survivor. And uh, this book is about you. I want to find out. We'll wake up. <laughs> Stay tuned for part three. So this reel, this guy was talking and he was talking in regards to actors. And he said what actors often, how often they screw up their lives and even maybe their trajectory to stardom, actually becoming an actor, you know, they don't look in front of them. They're like, well, I want to be a star, but I've been a waiter for two years. And, you know, the guy next to me, you know, who was bussing tables, we got his big break. Why don't I have a big break? I'm very much paraphrasing what this man was saying because it's been a while and a lot of reels in between. Your goal is to become an actor. That's great. You should take it one edition at a time. You take one edition this week, another edition next week. In between those two editions, you refine and you take notes and you take feedback and you make yourself better for that third edition. And if you look at it a week at a time and in three years, you've gone on 75 editions and you've gone on two shows and you've got a minor part in a commercial and then you do that for another year, and all of a sudden, you're like, oh, wow, I've got all this experience. How do I refine myself? How do I improve myself for the next edition, which might be your break? And he goes, it might take a long time. It might take two weeks. It might take two years. And yes, after five years, maybe you're not meant to be an actor. You can figure that out. But if you take conscience daily, consistent steps, instead of just thinking about being an actor over there, somewhere in 10 years and being disappointed because you're not there in 10 years, take it a day at a time and take it an addition at a time and a commercial at a time and a small part of the time. So the same thing can be applied to anything. There are body workouts you could do using your body in a wall in a chair. Mm-hmm. You can do enough exercises, 15 minutes a day to lose four inches. I have done it. I no longer can put a coffee cup as I'm sitting on my stomach and have it balanced. Like I've lost a lot of gut. When we worked at the restaurant, Jess, I lost 10 pounds during the time we worked because I was running around all the time. Yeah, it's a lot of walking. So so I want to pull this back. A day at a time. Um, and Jess, do you have any thoughts on Tender? Because I want to wrap up the talk about Survivor and then get back into something that you said regarding that we kind of started talking about. But we'll do that at the end. Specifically? Yeah. So, so like Tender, his brother, and Fertility – Do you think that they showed some change throughout the story or were they just pretty much consistent throughout? Like, how do you think change is reflected in the story that we read Survivor? Or is it not? Other than Adam. Well, Adam, obviously. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Hold on. Yeah, take your time. I'm not sure. Okay. That's fair. Do you have any final observations about the the book or the story itself, Survivor? that we didn't cover yet as we wrap up the the book conversation and then get into more of one of the side quests. The isolation and alienation, I wanted to know what you guys thought about that because it's not like a theme that jumped out at me except for the goldfish. Yeah, that that was because of the goldfish. So he is given these orders to go and serve his, you know, secular masters. The only real um, enjoyment he gets is taking care of this fish because he's otherwise isolated. And then uh, the suicide hotline nonsense that he you know prompts people to kill themselves and 
talks to fertility and on one end he's flirting with her, another end he's kind of torturing her. And that's the only real human interaction he has because his employers even don't speak to him person to person. They use the intercom. So yeah. that, but that's the only thing right there. Those, those three plot points, those three items that I just mentioned, that's the only thing that really speaks to isolation. And then when he goes to, because when he goes through his, uh, you know, skyrocket into stardom, he's also isolated. So he's constantly isolated. I guess I'm I'm changing my stance as I'm speaking because this is just coming to me. Tender's just isolated throughout the whole book. And he, Which he was even obviously, yeah. Yeah, he supposedly dies alone, you know, in that cockpit. What were you going to suggest? Uh, well, now I was going to say, do you think he died? Because they say that, like, it's supposed to be open for interpretation. And, like, Chuck Palahniuk, I think, answered whether or not, but I didn't look it up. He did? But how would he live? Yeah, I said he died in the last episode, and Jonathan said, well, maybe he somehow landed the plane with the little guidance he got from the pilot. Yeah, yeah. And Fertility said he could have. Yeah, and then, so the joke was like, yeah, he's a... Uh, but the last, yeah. He's living in uh, the outback with the Aborigines, but maybe, I don't know. You can you can crash a plane in a way that you survive. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> Because they say that it's revealed. Interesting. Somewhere. Yeah, look it up. I'm I'm curious about that. I was talking to I went to a wedding, maybe a month and a half ago, and I was talking to a random guy that I met, random bloke, and he had been taking pilot lessons, and he told me that most of the training is simply learning what to do if something goes wrong, and I was like, really? That's most of it? He's like, yeah. They teach you what it's like to get out of a tailspin. They teach you what it's like to get out of one of your engines failing. And I was like, that's interesting. So although Tender is not exactly a pilot, right? I think that they purposefully engineered these to be not user-friendly. That's not the right word. I think they purposefully engineered planes to try to mitigate how bad a a crash could be. Because, like, if you're... You ever play Mario, like Super Mario where if you're flying, he, like, goes up with his cape, and then you glide, and then you can go down and whatever. It's yeah. like that, where the the pilot told Tender, you know, you got two options. You're going up or you're going down. If you pull back on the yoke, you're going up, but your speed is slowing down. And he said, after your last engine burns out, you're going to go into the ground. But the thing is, if you have an ounce of common sense, just, like, you can... I think, and I would love to get a pilot on here to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you can just keep pulling up on the yoke and then letting it fall more, and you can kind of glide yourself to the ground to not die. So those are my those are my thoughts, and that's what I proposed last episode. According to Google, he survived. Hey, because I think the I think the I think Chuck Palahniuk said so. He fakes his death by using the tape recording to talk into the black box. Is what someone said. Oh, also that thing, the way he presents himself, where is it on here? Is it on here or is it in my text message? Identity and authenticity? Yeah, that. Because you said, um, like, the way he presents himself. I didn't notice that. Fertility, even, like, remember she was telling him how to describe her? Like, even she wanted a different view put out of her. I didn't notice that. Yeah. Like, her hair was (laughs) storm-tossed. Which which is everything she said about herself was opposite of what he said about her when he saw her in the crypt oh yeah yeah he said her mouth was like too too small or too like it was like a slash of red lipstick she said describe my lips as bee stung and then tara storm tossed her hair and it sounds storm tossed 
Yeah. He made, I love how he describes how people look. It's so funny. Because, like, I don't even know if she's attractive. I just know she. he describes people so weird. Yeah. Like, her, her, her dress looked too stiff and her arm, like, how her skin looked waxy. I wrote that down because I said that some of these are mine. Some of these are from a book review, two book reviews, and I pulled them out of this and kind of rewrote them in my own language. But that one was from a book review. And I thought about it, and I'm like, yeah, kind of. I guess so. And then now that you, what you're putting together, Jess, as we're talking, I'm like, absolutely. The authenticity thing? Yeah. Well, people want to be seen slightly differently. That's right. the fertility. She wants to be seen a certain way. That's not necessarily true. Yeah. Um, and Tender is seen by the crowd as absolutely something that he's not. Yeah, like he's very made into, which I didn't yeah. even think about how much effort it would take that fast. I think my favorite thing was amphetamines are the most American drug <laughs> from that part. And that's why we're all on Adderall. Yeah. yeah. So, Jess, speaking of tender, you mentioned something in our text that you have a funny story about the cleaning device he has. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's the picking up glass with a piece of bread. Huh. As a teenager, I didn't even, I went to do that. Not even thinking, I read it in a book. Like I was like, that's just a normal thing because I, you know, didn't clean that much as a teenager. So I tried to do it, and it didn't really. We had multigrain bread; it didn't really work. And I tried that again to pick up it, it with white bread. It works a little bit better huh. with white bread, but you're just better off using a vacuum cleaner. So I always wonder if the things in his books are true because he does that in a lot of books. He'll like give you facts, like Fight Club. It's all the bombs yeah. and stuff, which I've never Googled if those are true. You don't. You don't want, yeah, don't, you don't want to get on a list. Worried about Googling that kind of thing. I'm not going to Google that. I'll just assume. So like the cleaning things, I've also tried one of his shoplifting techniques. Sorry, what? Let's hear about that. Oh. I tried one of his, yeah, the, the cup. You open a cup, you have like a cup of soda and you drop things in it. Yeah. Yeah. It was at a, a craft store, some crafting <laughs> store. Me and my brother were stealing. To go home and do some crafts together. Yes. Love it. We were making those hemp bracelets. They were really important to us. This is Jess coming of age story. Yeah. She was a thief. I was. I was. I was you know not what? A good I got a book for you. It's called The Lies of Locke Lamora. It'll maybe this is going to feed your thieving habit. Never mind. Anyway, is it fan- as fantasy? It'll give me like tips. no. It's not fantasy. I mean, it could be classified as fantasy. And I think it is officially, but it's pretty much a, a book about thieves. It's like it's like a Victorian era mixed with 15th century Italy about a group of thieves. Who are performing a heist? Oh, that's cool. I like heists. The lies of Lock Lamora. I shouldn't, but I do. So Slava and I are reading it right now, and Slava, you want to give a quick uh, your 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 two cents on it? Sell sell the book to Jess. The characters are written really well. There's no characters; they're just kind of in the background, lingering, and you don't know what's going on. Everybody's involved, and you have mob bosses, and you have assassins, and you have what amounts to magicians, but they're not over-the-top fantastical magicians. And you have your main characters, a band of gentlemen bastards, as they're called. They're thieves. And you have these twists and situations that characters are put into that are just... The antes are really well done. And there's it's currently a three-book series, but the way that I described books two... Book two is like Shakespeare meets Ocean's Eleven. Book three... Oh, is cool. like Ocean's Eleven meets the Manchurian Candidate mixed with Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, I like that. It's, if, you, if you like heists, this is a book for you. I do. 
You know, they did that uh, Rick and Morty episode on heists, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know heists are lame. <laughs> like, I love heist movies. I love when they put together the yeah. team. They yeah. are all. I realize they all are really alike, though. Like yeah. putting together a crew. <laughs> right now, that, that's the, that's the fun part. Yeah, but that's the best part. Yeah, that's why I like Mission Impossible and James Bond. And we mentioned this. They're they're an escape for me. They're always the same. Always beat the bad guy. Always get the girl. If it's a spy movie, probably the girl dies because. Freaking Ethan Hawke loses a woman in every movie almost. So either the girl dies or they save the girl. There's a lot of cool gadgets. They kick ass and save the world. It's the same damn thing over and over, but I find it fun. We like the familiarity, though. That's what we like about storytelling. What were we talking about recently that was, um, I said it's because it's familiar. I think it was actually Survivor. I think it was the last episode where Survivor is so similar to Fight Club with the tropes that we know what we're going to get. Like, we're not necessarily going to get a, a, a clean ending. It's not going to be happy. But I think that you are familiar enough with, if you've read Fight Club, because it, it was his first published book, I think. Yep. Yeah. Um, that you, you know what you're getting. You're familiar enough with it. And so, like, even John Grissom, like, he writes similar stories. And so, you know, when you pick up one of his books, it's not going to be the exact same story, but the tropes will be similar enough that you have an expectation that will be fulfilled. Romance novels, same thing. Nicholas Sparks, you know when you pick up a Nicholas Sparks book, you're getting a certain quality of story, and that's what you want. It's like going to McDonald's. And this brings up a nice segue. We rated the book pretty well because of the things you just mentioned. And Jess told me in a private conversation that she book less than us. So I want Jess to talk about that for a minute. I feel like I might just rate things horribly. Well, character development, I think, is lower, was definitely. Characters, I think I gave characters a three. The world, you know how, like, in those fantasy books or the fantasy short story, the, the, a lot of those books, I feel like their their worlds are very constructed, well-constructed. I'm not saying his aren't, but it's, like, kind of like that thing, who you said, Grisham, or I like how a Wes Anderson movie, I kind of know what the universe is going to be like, and that's how I feel like his books are. Like, I know what kind of people, I know what the world's like. Yeah. Which makes the story believable. But part of the reason his stories, I think, are believable is how fast-paced they are. So you don't have time to think. What do you think, uh, Jess? A story four? Story, I think, 4.5 because, like, it it's done well enough that I don't think about, you know, I don't I believe the story, which is so far-fetched because of how it's told. And I feel like only he tells the story. The way he does the kind of writing he does, I feel like he does it better than anyone. Where it's very fast-paced and he always tries like how he – I do like how he start, always has like a thing. He starts you – know, this one, he starts the book in the you know, in the 300s mm-hmm. from the end to ca- countdown, as a countdown. Yeah. It makes it feel pressured like for time. You don't get with the audible. True, true. Um, yeah. And he always has things like that that I, I like that he does that. So I think it's, you know, creative. World – I guess a four, but characters three. Okay. I like that you can kind of project onto the characters. He doesn't like tell you too much about them, how they feel about things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What they, I like, I like the odd description. So you, I like projecting what I, you know, for movies, it's cool too, to not have like a really described character physically. Yeah. Then it's like, who looks like Mar? Well, I think they did good casting for that. But, um, cause you kind of see like for the agent though, I imagine the matrix guy agent. Oh, Agent Smith? Yeah. Because yeah. they say he's just so boring and generic. And I was like, so in my head, I'm like, I think I see that guy. That makes sense. So based on your ratings then, do you, what improvements would you make like in the book? 
Well, Slava, you said like you wanted more of those, the call-ins. Like mm-hmm. you wanted to hear me too. Because you kind of get a sense of who he was and that whole like part-time God thing. Like I want to see how he was a part-time God. Like what yeah. he, he almost sounds bored when he's going through it. Like he's breading a cutlet or veal cutlet or whatever. And he's like, kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. love that part. And it, like someone's like, I think I have the wrong number. Well, kill yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And that kind of thing, like why does he do that? Like is it control? Fight Club also has things like that. That's why he decorated his apartment, like a yeah. form of control. Like he had, did not have much he had control over in his world. Yeah. Um, which for that I like tender because like that's such a weird thing. People calling and he just tells them to kill himself. Does he feel closer to them? Because to the isolation thing, he only talks about really like he loves that fish so much it's sad. True. Yeah, like he's like, I, I care about that fish more than anything in the world. And he or- just found out everyone he grew up with died. Yeah, and he, all the fish have been dying. This is like his yeah. 600th and, fish. Yeah, and she knew which fish, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's very peculiar. Uh, to speak to, speaking to the control and like part-time God thing, do you think that it's partly him just fulfilling his upbringing? Where like, hey, if you're calling the suicide hotline, it seems like it's time for your, what, how did he say it? Like, send you back to your maker or send you, what's back the phrase? God. Send you back to God. Is it send you back to yeah. God? Yeah. Do you think he's just fulfilling his childhood in that? Because, like, that was his upbringing? Yeah, or, like, he was supposed to. Yeah. But he but he refused. You know, he didn't kill himself when he was supposed to. Yeah. yeah. So this yeah. was, like, a way. Not having your cake and eating it, too. That's not the right phrase, but something similar. Like, he was somewhat killing, but then that, that makes me think of the smoking and the drinking, where he's like, I, I can kill myself in other ways. Yeah. Because in some yeah. ways, and also with the celebrity thing, he was taking all those drugs that are obviously going to kill you, but it was worth short term. Mm-hmm. So he was indirectly. We're all always indirectly killing ourselves. We just don't look at it that way. Yeah, yeah. And I think I don't think there was any malice in him telling people to kill themselves. I mean, that's an evil thing to yes, say. It's a bad thing to yeah, say. Yeah, that's why I don't think of him as a bad person. Which is, but weird I don't think he like, was like muhaha. I hope this douchebag dies. I think it was just a natural response of, by who Tender is. Whether he's fulfilling his creedal death cult mission, mm-hmm. or he thinks this is what normal people do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, this is this is like a normal thing for him. I don't think that he thinks it's what normal people do because he's interacted with the world, and the world is not like him. Yeah. Well, normal for him, right? Not normal okay. in okay. an objective sense. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, everyone is sent out into the world, and they stay isolated, or they're supposed to, and they're so brainwashed that none of them like leave the life and like you know try to be normal because i feel like he seems normal but he doesn't he he does uh, maybe not he's I awkward we know his yeah but he's not like this naive person who doesn't know anything about sex because you know because he, he wanted to be near like you know for the he was like in the beginning he wanted to be near all those young girls like he wanted to be near women even though he knew he wasn't can't have sex with them yeah 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 yeah, yeah that's a good point hmm. yeah and oh, I like, love that part when he's like, shoot me in my big fat heart. <laughs> like, all, she's like talking about him. Then he's yeah. like, I want to die. Like, he didn't want to die. He was so afraid. He was waiting for the caseworker to call him back. And then he's like, oh, I'm just going to stand in front of the window now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. moments like that that makes it such a fun read. Yeah, it is funny. Love it. So let's land this plane, and then I want to get to those follow-up questions. Slava, you got any final, final items for, for Jess or myself? I think we hit all of them except one, and if Jess can take 30 seconds, because she read the book by Palinuk on writing or his writing style, Mm -hmm. and maybe she can land the plane, pun intended, 
talking about that, and then we'll go in the questions and uh, officially end it. Also pun intended. I haven't read it recently. Like he do, oh, in every book, he does like a chorus, chorus thing. What did you want to ask me about the book specifically? No, the style of writing because we. Oh, the style Jonathan of and I okay. talked about the the writing style and the philosophy of writing that he has in the beginning of the first episode. So we're going to end it. We're going to bookend it with your comments on it and the writing style and all that jazz. I know his thing is like short sentences. Why is that? Is He said that's how people talk in real life. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. Yep. That's what I got from. Which uh, is true because thinking of dialogue in other books where it feels like it's a script of a movie or something. The way he tells a story like this one with the counting down with invisible monsters. He does like a jump to page this because it's supposed to feel and he explains it too in the book. He explains things to the readers too. Like how to, oh, it's like a magazine. I keep on forgetting your dog's in here. The magazine feel of the book because the book is about a model in the beginning. Hmm, okay. Mm, so it's like jump to this page. So it gives you like a different feel. If that's like a good word to describe to feel like this one has like, like where it's pressured because you're running out of time. The one is like a, it's supposed to be like a tabloid. And I did not retell all. It's the book, but it's supposed to be like a tabloid. It's like a celebrity tabloid thing. Trying to think. He always does like a chorus, which you see in like Fight Club. Like he repeats certain things. I know he does that in Choke. I really like what he does in Choke. It's he and he does a very similar phrasing in this. He'll be like, "That's not the right word, but it's close enough," or like some sort of paraphrasing of that. The chorus thing I like so much. I don't know. I don't remember why he does it. It's like a message to bring people back to. I guess it's an emphasis that this is important. That you yeah. earmark this or whatever. And it's also to I think for transitioning. You know, like when you transition yeah. from like, oh, you go here. He doesn't spend a lot of time like describing the next. Because like they, they just they go all across America. Like a lot happens, but you, it feels very smooth, the transitions. Because he tells a story well. Writing wise, I could never do that. Make it like a seamless feel. It would take a lot of practice, I'm sure. Yeah, not like end next, end next, you know, yeah. type thing. Like Right. No, that's good. Very good. That's all I got. <laughs> what do you got, Jonathan? You had some questions you wanted to ask Jess and then we officially land it. Yeah, so... Earlier in the episode, and we, we've kind of dipped our toe back into this a little bit, but let's start with the first one. You said that there are no more standards today. And so I'm curious why you feel like that's the case. I agree with you, but I want to know your thoughts. I just think it shows and what like is produced, like art-wise. Like literature, the, well, the way we all speak. Literature, well, we'll just go back to art. Literature, art, like art, visual art, movies books like reality tv is popular for a reason it's like we consume like junk food constantly mm-hmm. it's not a really well thought out it's kind of vague no but it makes sense it's it's clear enough and everything i feel like you know we're not allowed to say things are better than other things now so in terms <laughs> of like so for the poetry like it's you know it's it's wrong to say some poetry is better because it's more formal or like better english it's like elitist. Like to have standards is elitist by a lot of people's views, but that yeah. is what makes things good. Think some things are better than other things. And yeah. there's reasons why we have, you know, and you know, then you can aspire to certain things if someone like, you know, I'm never gonna be Charles Dickens, but you know, I can try. And those people that say that having standards is elitist are already standardizing certain things, right? They're already mm-hmm. putting standards. They're making objective claims that to be this way is worse than to be like them who have no standards is a standard. Yeah. Right. It's an absurd position to take. 
and they do it for reasons we don't need to get into because we'll be here for another hour. In my opinion, I think when you whittle down standards to the absurdity that we find in our current culture. Which is weird because like our society, like in this, you know, the book, it talks about, you know, obviously, I don't know what you meant by, you said you stole it. It says like the fleeting, the beauty thing, but you said it weird. The fleeting nature of beauty. Shoot, where was I going with that? Oh, people tend to like, instead of trying to be better in what we produce as art, People, superficially, that is what people kind of tend to focus on. Perceiving that they're better, but not actually doing the work. A veneer, if you will. Yeah, definitely. And maybe it gives you a sense that you're doing something when you're not creating something. Oh, yeah. Like the glow up thing. I understand it's like some sort of improvement in your life and it can be applied in any way. But sometimes like, did you just buy makeup? Because that's not like, that's not really improving your life. It's just Mm -hmm. you slightly different. Yeah. With more contrast or something. It's not really change. And I feel like people aspire to like that. Very superficial things. Right. The illusion of progress. Yes. What other people can see and you can pretend, which is, you know, half the book anyway, because he isn't the person they're saying he is. They wrote his life for him. Right. The media made Messiah thing. You know, the looks part, I guess, was important. No one would uh, worship a fat Jesus. That's true. Which I feel like we should have brought that up. You can dive into right now if you want to. Yeah. So share your thoughts on it. What do you think? about that well do you think that matters like yes i think it matters for our for our society and you know the the prophecies of jesus and even the descriptions of jesus the real jesus is that he wasn't very uh, comely or handsome he was not somebody you would aspire to worship people when they think of god and messiahs and what they would worship they do want something that transcends their meager shit in existence in the the immediate vicinity. They want a buff God, an eloquent God. They want a Messiah that saves them from their immediate boredom. They want quick fixes. They want the dopamine hit, something that will give them the illusion of change, the veneer. So those stupid prayers for traffic or their stupid prayers for, you know, the cigarettes, they really don't do anything. It's just it's a religious rite. It's a ritual. And we mentioned on this podcast numerous times, every human is built for that. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's just, it's all fake. Like we're meant to worship something. We're meant to worship something. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah. And it, like right now where we are in culture, it would be like a celebrity that yeah. would be the Messiah. Yeah. Because that's where like our values put on things like that. Yeah. Yeah. 110%. 100%. That's good. So my final question, Jess, that I wrote down from something you brought up earlier is you said you don't think you uh, or you said you have nothing to aspire to. And I want to go down this rabbit trail and it might take a hot minute, but I'm curious about what provokes you to say that? What what in your life brings that to be a belief that you hold? Maybe it's, uh, you know, role models or something to look up to, but maybe that's like I've always felt that way. I don't know. Or if it's specific to this part of my life, you know, being kind of not middle age, but not knowing what to do next. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For me, that's what it is specifically, what to do next. For me, it's not trying to stop doing certain things because I'm pretty good at breaking bad habits, like even very bad habits. I'm like, I feel like I'm good at, you know, stopping without like intervention. Well, I've had Mm -hmm. intervention, but without intervention, I've also, that's actually probably works better when, cause it's when you choose to change kind of like what you said. Yeah. 
that's why a lot of times, you know, things that you think someone would need like rehab for, like people, some people do on their own, not usually, but sometimes, you know, you don't need, you know, people to tell you hit rock bottom, you can tell. It's more like how to, you know, achieve something more than like stop doing something. Mm-hmm. Well, what for me specifically, like, um, like specifically to aspire to, like, I, yeah, I don't really feel like anything. Do you have any current goals or anything like that in life? Like even short term goals? I feel like it's depressing if I say it all out loud. Um, trying to stick to a routine. That's been because I just had this idea that you could you can't be crazy if you stick to a routine. Like you're pretty mentally well if you're like sticking to a routine. Specifically, it started out being exercise. That one I think is like the easiest for someone trying to change their life no matter what. You know how like almost every self-help book is like exercise? Yeah. It, it's such because it's an easy thing to commit to and everyone has to do it anyway. And it wasn't something that I particularly hated to begin with. But then I remember being like, you know, I feel like this really makes me sane. Yeah. Yeah. I would second that. I think people who have the ability to choose discipline and you, you use the word consistency to stick to something are people who have a healthier lifestyle. Now, does that mean that every aspect of their life is healthy? No. However, if you can flex the muscle that is discipline, I would say that you, your statement is correct, that it makes you, did you say not crazy? Is that what you said? Mentally well. I think it's a good indication of mental wellness is to stick to an exercise routine. Yeah. Specifically for like the problems I had, like certain things I was doing, you can't exercise if you're doing those things because it interferes like the next day if you're hungover. I think mental wellness, and I'm going to split some hairs here or maybe annoy some people, but I think mental wellness does not mean that all of a sudden, any spiritual, emotional, or mental issues we're dealing with just go away. Right. It's just understanding that I have this issue, I have to work on it. Some days are going to be valleys, some days are going to be peaks, some days are going to be very neutral plateaus, whatever. But I have to take every day as it comes. I know this sounds like such a cliche thing, but I don't mm-hmm. mean it that way because it's just been overused, so it's become a cliche, but it's actually true. Every day, just like that actor Give advice. Just take every mm-hmm. day at a time. What do I want to do? I want to be mentally well, mentally fit. Well, that might take 10 years. Well, that sucks. So I'm never going to do it. Well, then, yeah, then you're never going to do it. But if you fight for it and it takes you 10 years, that's a notch in your belt instead of just right. fast forward to 10 years and I'm still the same person. Yeah. Yeah. We had a, a small bit in the 50th episode that we will drop here soon. Um, it's already dropped. It's already dropped. I don't know what episode. I don't even know what date it is sometimes. I, I made the comment that self-reflection is a really good thing for people to have. We don't do it very often, but I am a huge proponent of it because if you're in the same place you were last year, then maybe it's time to consider doing something new. It doesn't mean that everyone has to have a, a crazy destiny and land on the moon. I think that aspirations start when you begin asking yourself questions like, is the life I have today the life I want to live for the rest of my life? Or are the habits that I have today, and you kind of brought this up, Jess, are the habits that I have today the habits I want to have to be a good parent or be a good spouse or to be a good friend? Are the habits the things that will help my friends become better? You know, do I have a community around me that allows me to be better myself and also to better others? Maybe that's not the values that some people have, But I would say that it is the values that promote a mentally well person. Yeah, I think it's things people need. The community part, I didn't really realize that until somewhat recently in the the last couple Mm. of years. 
it really keeps you in check having other people it does weigh in and we're like now a lot of people not me not my my job but like uh, a lot of people they're you know they work from home mm-hmm. you know they don't really have people keeping them in check the same way yeah but uh and also like being well for other people yeah that matters more when you have a community you see how your issues affect other people more which i definitely did not think of that in my 20s i've undone a lot of my past or not un you know done it try not to repeat the same things and then I have like a trouble trouble establishing establishing goals and it's like mm. what to do in the future. Some of it is, you know, maybe career wise. I think that's a common problem that we as millennials have. Yeah. Well like we were told, go to college, you get a job. That's your career. And it's like, that's not how the world works. Well, that's, well, for me, I was like, well, you know, I didn't go to college. So maybe that was it. And then everyone else was like, well, you don't need to go to college. And I'm like, well, what the f*** do I do then? What do I do? Because <laughs> yeah. like everything that I seemed good at was like more, uh, you know, academic. So to go out in the world, I'm, like, I'm not going to have a trade exactly. Mm-hmm. Although I probably could. And I changed my mind on a lot of that stuff. Like I do like what I do, though, I, I'm surprised because I didn't think I'd want to do anything remotely social but i actually really like that part interesting what do you feel like some of your strengths are i process information fast i read really fast Mm -hmm. career-wise i don't know what you're supposed to say because i have no idea like i've never had like a real job sure so i don't know like skills oh yes i'm not asking for the right answers i'm asking for justice answers i don't know i don't know how it's marketed like how what kind of career that would be though i mean other like i like to write but i mean so i'm planning on you know writing more but that's not that's more of a career you do on the side not necessarily there are positions where if you process information fast and you're a quick reader and mm-hmm. you write well you could be a technical writer those people make my dad's talked about that to me actually if you understand technological concepts or you feel like you could reasonably well and quickly mm-hmm. you could be a technical writer and those people make 60 70 if you go to the right company 100 grand a year i'll look into that like it's a real i'll look into things that i'm good at and see what that could be without having to go to college or oh yeah with little to to if you you know if you ever want to jump on here even from home and just have a chat with slava and i i would be happy to give you some career coaching if you will i've been doing that to my girlfriend right now and another buddy of mine actually two what is a life coach exactly like i know how it's shown in tv yeah I, so i've seen it like in nip tuck that's like the only okay. thing and i'm pretty nice. sure you don't do that no i, I i've not. never watched nip tuck but i know the premise and i'm gonna just go with probably not so there's a few ways to look at it so i have a therapist friend and he sometimes has clients who he just coaches uh they don't really need therapy and he just helps them coach to the next level and usually that's business owners or people trying to get into business because some people are healthy enough that they just need a little coaching to get on their yeah. way rather than like full on therapy because there's it's kind of a scale so there's places that have like life coaching certificates and those places piss me off because I don't and this this is a, a belief that I've had since college and probably younger honestly is you if you haven't done the profession I don't want to learn from you so I got a, a filmmaking degree And some of the teachers in one of the colleges, because I went to five of them, never made a film in their life or they made one film. And it's like, I don't want to learn from you then because you don't really know the industry. Yeah. And so my that's my same premise with life coaches. It's if you haven't achieved success, then I really don't think that you get to sell me success. Yeah. And so because we can't and this is something I say regularly. I don't think I've said it a ton on the podcast, but I can't give you what I don't have access to. So if Jess, if you come to me, go, hey, you know, I'm really 
uh, I got to pay my fa- my phone bill. It's a hundred bucks. Could you give me a hundred bucks? And I go, I would love to give you a hundred bucks. We're friends. You know, let me help you out. And then I check my bank account. I don't have a hundred bucks. I can't give it to you. Right? Like this, the premise continues though. If you need peace or joy, I can't give you that. If you need yeah. success and I've never, I've just like cultivated a veneer of success. I can't give you that. I can't give you the path to get there because I've never actually achieved it. I've, I've achieved a house of cards. And so while I don't consider myself the most successful person in the world, I am a proponent of helping people skip steps that I had to walk through. And so for me, that's life coaching is let me share with you my experiences to help you skip steps that you would otherwise have to walk through. Mm -hmm. That's my opinion. So Go for it, Slava. I was going to make a stupid joke after all the serious talk. <laughs> Tender Jonathan here has offered his services to to his friends, but they're actually real and not made by the evil agent. One night, though, your wife brainstormed like future career upper careers for me. Yeah, and it's funny because she said psychology, and I was like, I was really interested that you have to go back to school for that. But like I was, you know, when mm-hmm. I took psychology in school, it wasn't like for, you know, people do it to, they need a degree. I was like, oh, that would be interesting because I think it should be approached differently. But I like what you said about life coaching. And hey, you can do technical writing for psychology textbooks. Mm-hmm. Like if you like the field, if you understand the field and you have the three skills Jonathan pointed out, we could get you to look at maybe uh, jobs and uh, in that field. And maybe so you get a certificate so you look fancy. So there's a lot of stuff. But- Let's land the plane, Jonathan. Because it's a book on plane, flying a plane, Survivor. Yes. The, yep. All those things. Jess, a huge thank you for putting up with us for an hour and 45 minutes. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah, and it was. Now, now that you've been through it, would you come on again? Yes, because I see how it's, when it's hard, when I was just, I get distracted too easily. Sure. But also, like, when it starts to feel like, oh, we're having a conversation, it's very easy. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what it's all yeah. about. So a huge thank you, Jess, and I want to give you the the last word before uh, Jonathan takes us out with uh, our usual uh, pleasantries. I'm just excited that I finally get to talk about, like, Chuck P's books. Awesome. Like, the last time when I read this book, I was walking around. The the person who told, like, I was talking about the books to people in the mall, and everyone loved Chuck Palahniuk. It was just like, have you read this we- weird writer? Yeah, no, we're glad to have you too because Jonathan and I both love talking books and talking media and talking marketing and all that stuff. So now that we have a third recurring guest, which will be you, we'll we'll set you up for uh, probably the next Palinchuk book, Palinug book we do, and maybe something else. Maybe we'll have you on for Lies of La Clamora. That was actually what I was going to say, and then I'll I'll lead us out here, is if you read quickly and you uh-huh. like heist stories... Go pick up the Liza Locke Lamora and let's try and get her on in like a few weeks for the Liza Locke Lamora with Spencer because I think that'd be a fun crowd. Yeah. Oh, cool. Hold on. Let me look at it, Liza. Okay. All right. Let me lead us out here. So be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss a side quest and join us next time when we discuss. What are we doing next? <laughs> when we discuss part one of the Liza Locke. Oh, man. Okay, I'm just going to leave this. I'm not even going to redo it. I'm just going to let my, my, um, uh, the, I'm going to leave the egg on my face. <laughs> <laughs>